welcome back to Artwatch Podcast. Finally, after, oh my gosh, I think almost like three months. Um, okay, so you all sort of know that my laptop died in the middle of finals and like in the middle of my own finals while I was also giving my first round of finals as a professor. So my laptop, my old laptop was five years old. Um, and so it was sort of expected that it might die soon, but I was not expecting it to happen during the school year, which I guess, I guess that's what I get for that. But, um, uh, so yeah, I, everything was running fine. And then one day I turned it on and it straight up said, nope. Um, and I spent more money than I should have trying to fix it. And of course, with my luck related to technology and just in general, it couldn't be fixed. So I, the next day, and this is all like before New Year's too, which makes it worse. So I purchased a computer through HP's website and it was supposed to get to me before the end of January, which, um, I was also in the process of moving back to New York, which I'm back in New York, by the way. Um, and so like in all of that process of buying it at the end of December or like the very first day of January, it tells me I'm not going to get the laptop until the end of the month and I'm freaking out. And so, okay, whatever. I rearranged my living situation, all that fun bullshit. And yeah. And then halfway through the month, I get a notification that it's not even supposed to ship until February 2nd. Um, and so I had to rearrange plans again. Um, but ultimately I had to scrap buying it from HP's website directly. I went to Best Buy and I got the computer I wanted, um, which they didn't have it in stock initially, which is why I bought it online. Um, and so, yeah, I, I finally have a laptop after almost two months of not having one. And so February has just sort of been like catching up and all that fun stuff and getting ready for the start of the semester. So yes, I'm back. Um, very, a very long winded way to say that, um, we're picking up where we left off from the very unexpected break. So before we left or before I was so rudely interrupted by the dying of my laptop. We were doing the um, writing resources mini-series and we left off with the visual analysis. Uh, and Caitlin, who is a friend and colleague, was the wonderful guest for that episode. So if you remember, the visual analysis is rooted strictly in the visual. It's simply describing what we see. And most professors do not want any historic context of any kind when you're writing this type of essay. We simply want to know what you're looking at. That's it. <laughs> you're just describing it. Um, but the historical context or cultural context essay is the next step in your art historical writing. So the tricky part with these is that the level of depth is different with each level of class that you're taking. So my survey students, I just want them to think about why this work is characteristic of their time period what aspects of the visual inform our understanding of the object's function, why is it important to the culture, or maybe if a certain compositional aspect is an indicator of a specific period. Um, for upper-level students, it might push more into socio-political issues, new readings of works, or sort of a combination of varying issues that they see fit, or maybe that your professor has um, 
indicated that they want you to look at. So for the purpose of keeping this episode as a teaching resource, I'll sort of be modeling an example um, of one way for survey students to approach an art historical context-based essay. Um, but sort of throughout, I'll make a couple notes here and there of how uh, an upper-level student might create a more advanced idea surrounding the same object. So, of course, for grad students, this is probably not going to be useful for you, um, since you should be thinking in terms of original research at this point, and I can't give you an answer as to what that will be. It's sort of one of those things where you just kind of, maybe you're eating a bowl of cereal and you're like, I've got it. <laughs> so it's probably not going to be useful for you, but if you are teaching or maybe you know somebody who's teaching and you think they might get use out of this, uh, please, please share it. I would greatly appreciate that. Um, so since we're focused in Latin American art, since we're a Latin American art podcast, we're going to be looking at the painting uh, Indian Potter by Peruvian painter and politician Francisco Lasso. Now, I want to look at this artist because his art historian, Natalia Maliuf, just published a book titled Inventing Indigenism, Francisco Lasso's Image of Modern Peru. Um, the book is about his works, and you should all check it out because it has a wonderful contextual contextualization of sociopolitical issues of Peru in the 19th century. And this painting is also the cover of the book, so when you look at the work, you can check out the book. Uh, pretty cool. <laughs> so students typically struggle with where they should start when they need to write an essay that requires research. The first thing that you want to do is look at what question your professor wants you to answer, or for upper level students, what kind of question or questions does your professor want you to ask? And that's sort of where things get different, or um, they sort of, you know, create the fork in the road as far as levels of essays. So for my survey students, like I said, I typically just want them to answer if their chosen work is characteristic of the period. And if yes, then what aspects of it make it conform to the trends of that period or culture? If not, how does the work break away from the accepted canon? Um, so for upper level students with a work like this, you could even take it deeper and write about how the work was embedded in Peruvian politics and understandings of racial differences. Survey students might touch on some of these aspects, but they typically don't go into depth or they don't need to go into depth. Um, not as much as like an upper level student, so like a 3000 or 4000 level class, at least that's how, I don't know how it's coded at every university, but you get the idea, junior, senior level class. So with these questions in mind, you're obviously going to need to do your research before you start writing. Um, I tell my students to use library resources, class readings, and JSTOR as a way to find good resources. Typically colleges and universities have a subscription to JSTOR and other journal repositories or even specific journals. Um, Google Scholar can be useful, but sometimes you get blocked from viewing an entire article or book. Um, so if you just want to look at the table of contents and maybe your library page doesn't have that um, available to you like online, then maybe Google Scholar could be a good place for that. Um, 
And then, of course, for AP high school students who are listening, you will probably need to rely on your textbook and whatever your library has to offer, which can be incredibly frustrating, but you can also take advantage of city libraries. Sometimes they are really useful, and even in my undergrad, I was able to get some really good information and really good books from, from city libraries. Uh, and they typically have like strange arrays of offerings. Um, every library is different and sometimes they even have special collections that you can go look at. And then what else? Oh yes, you can always use museum websites or maybe the artist has a website that you can use or their foundation if they're dead or passed away, I should say. Um, <laughs> but ultimately for any student listening to this, just just don't use Wikipedia or like some strange website to cite your sources. Um, Wikipedia can be really unreliable, even though it is a good starting point. And like we all we all go to Wikipedia. Like if you're just sort of like, uh, when was this person born? You know, sometimes you just go to Wikipedia or, you know, it happens. We use it. It's not bad. It's just when you're writing a paper, since it can be so unreliable, you don't want to use that as your main source. Um, but if you are using it as a starting point, I definitely recommend looking at the sources that they use and using your best judgment as to whether or not those are scholarly sources that you can actually use for your essay. Um, sometimes they, they cite really, really good books or really good articles. And then sometimes it's one of those really weird websites and that has not been updated since the early 2000s. Or maybe it's just a tourist website and, you know, those things, I've, I've looked at some of them and they are not always accurate. Um, but yeah, so I, I check, I've checked some of the sources that my students have cited and typically they have, again, inaccurate information and or the information lacks any true insight. Um, that being said, again, we all use Wikipedia to get a little bit of information. It's not a bad source. It just shouldn't be your main source. Um, what else? Yeah, so like there, I mean, there are some good Wikipedia pages that have really, really good sources, like I was saying. So use those instead. Don't cite Wikipedia. Um, it is really important that you have quality sources in these types of essays because one, they'll really help you build your argument. Uh, two, you should get into the habit of looking at reputable sources anyway, especially as you advance in your academic career. Your professors will expect more critical readings of theories, artists, periods, really anything that you're looking at. And three, finally, yes, we do check your sources. I always check the sources that my students use and I'll take points off when they do not use appropriate sources. Um, it's typically when it's one of those really bad like tourist websites. Um, I've seen really weird chat room type sources too. Um, so yeah, just make sure you're using good, good sources. So after you've done your research, you will feel well-informed or you should feel well-informed, I would hope, about your work artist, the culture, and the period that it was made in. And you should be ready to write. Um, so if we're using Lasso's painting, Indian Potter, for our essay, or our, you know, our quote essay for the, for the podcast episode, um, what are our sections going to look like? Uh, 
So like any essay, you're going to need an introduction, body paragraphs, and a conclusion. I'm going to try and model more lower level essay, uh, one that I would give an A to, I would hope anyway. Um, I'll probably, uh, I'm going to interrupt throughout and give you different routes for more advanced students. Um, but it goes without saying, as you're writing, you should continue to cite your sources. And obviously you can't see that in a podcast format, but I have done some research before creating this for you, as I do with all of my episodes. Um, so writing, citing your sources in essays is tedious and it can be frustrating. And nobody likes writing them by hand, right? It It's annoying. So look and see if your university has a citation creator. Mine uses RefWorks and they also have EndNote. Um, I personally love RefWorks. I think it's fantastic. Um, if you don't have RefWorks or EndNote as part of your university, you could always use EasyBib or Citation Machine. You can just sort of look those up. Um, I think EasyBib is run by Chegg, and I don't remember who Citation Machine is run by, but they are pretty good. For the most part, they're accurate. Just you, you might want to double check some of them. And I think sometimes, at least when I was using them back in my early undergrad, I think they put like a cap on how much you could use it. So they're good starts, but hopefully your university or college has a, a subscription to RefWorks or EndNote. And uh, both of those you can actually embed in your Word program or whatever program you're using to write your essay. Uh, so that, that that is super nice. Um, okay, so on to the essay. Uh, you should always begin with an introduction and its length will depend on your page count. So my survey students, I point them to about a good paragraph of at least five sentences. And if it helps for your for organizational purposes, um, your thesis should be the very final sentence or the last two sentences of that paragraph. So advanced students, your intro might actually be one to two pages because you really have to set the stage. You might do a little bit of a lit review in there um, and how you got to your idea or argument. Um, my advice is that in the introduction, regardless of your level, that you introduce the issue at hand and the artist in addition to the work that you're examining, blah, blah, that you're examining. <laughs> um, so in the case of Lasso, it, it might look something like this. Latin American works of the 19th century are connected to fascination with campesino and indigenous classes that are associated with the pre-Hispanic past. Peruvian painter Francisco Lasso's work, The Indian Potter, originally titled The Inhabitant of the Cordillera of Peru, depicts an indigenous artisan who looks directly at the viewer while holding an earthenware vessel in the shape of a squatting man. The artisan wears a dark, wide-brimmed hat with scarf-like tassels that frame his face, as well as a black, long-sleeved robe. Lasso situates his subject in a neutral base background that collapses space and seemingly suspends the subject in time. Although at first glance, Lasso's painting appears to be more genre-based, 
its subject matter is deeply tied with the socio-political climate of the period. Okay, so here is where the thesis will be different based on your level. A lower level thesis might look like this. This work is representative of the period because of his focus on the indigenous subject and the inclusion of pre-Hispanic handicrafts. So sometimes lower level students will focus on specific aspects of the painting, maybe not necessarily concepts, which there's nothing wrong with that. We're still learning how to write and it's better to, to focus on one thing and write it well instead of try and grasp for concepts that maybe you don't quite understand just yet. Um, but for upper level students, a thesis might look more like this. Lasso's work is related to the period's interests in um, racial and ethnic identities that were intrinsically tied to socioeconomic class and the oppression of Peru's indigenous populations. Lasso's subject is both a literal and symbolic representation of the indigenous body. So, of course, you can change it. Obviously, there's not perfect, neither of these is a perfect thesis, but it's an idea of how you might approach it. Um, these are just two examples. So you can tailor it to whatever direction your paper is going to be influenced by or whatever your assignment guidelines want you to focus on. Um, and of course, with any introduction, you could always fluff it up a bit with um, relevant biographic information or period information. Um, but you don't have to go too much into that because you're probably going to use that in the body of your, your essay. <laughs> Excuse me. So, speaking of the body paragraphs, how do we organize them? So, if you're a beginner at art historical writing or just, you know, college level writing in general, sometimes it's easier to follow the organization that you set up in your thesis statement. Um, so, for the first thesis statement, that means that my very first paragraph would be related to Lasso's inclusion of the indigenous subject. And the second paragraph would be focused on the importance of the ceramic vessel that the figure is holding. But the upper level paper can take a few different routes and usually it's gonna be broken up into quite a few paragraphs because the concepts are much more in depth and you'll typically be engaging with other scholars and what they're saying about your work, your artist or the period. So for this example, you could begin by looking at how race and ethnicity were perceived in the period and what that means when we look at the work itself. Um, how can we deepen this interpretation when we consider the artist's subjectivity, meaning what does the artist's identity tell us about his point of view? Your second topic would then need to be related to class and how class and race were used to oppress indigenous populations. Obviously, you can't unpack any of these ideas in one or even two paragraphs. So upper level students will want to really take their time and, and tease out these themes. But for both levels, it's, it's very important that you support your thoughtful and reasonable claims by citing your sources. Um, so what have other scholars said about your chosen work or artist? How can their readings better inform yours? And since this episode is, is really a guide for how to approach the essay, 
I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty about this work and my own readings of it since I'd really like to do an episode about Lasso in the next few weeks. But I do want to leave you with the different types of information that would be important to writing a historical context, uh, sorry, historical context essay. So we definitely want to hear about the artist's background. Did they come from a wealthy family? Um, in Lasso's case, yes. His family was an aristocratic family embedded in Peruvian politics. Uh, from what I understand, uh, they were one of the first or one of the wealthiest colonial family families. Uh, so what type of education did the artist have? Are they trained? Are they a trained artist or self-taught? So Lasso came from a wealthy family and trained in Paris. Uh, he did briefly have a stint as a lawyer, but he scrapped that and became an artist, which for whatever reason, a lot of artists do. Uh, it's not just him, but I've, I think that's a trend for many artists. They start in like banking or law or something else and they just, uh, they decide they don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> so they become an artist, which is really neat. Um, anyway, so he was... So Lasso was well-versed in Europe, in the European Academy, which at the time was sort of the pinnacle of what is, you know, the proverbial good versus uh, good and acceptable art versus bad and unacceptable. Um, so then you sort of want to ask, was this artist involved in or influenced by the politics of the period? At the time that Lasso was creating the work, ideas of indigenismo or indigenism were beginning to form, not quite uh, at its peak, the way we see really in the early to mid 20th century. Um, it is different for each country. Uh, I think Peru, I think they started a little bit um, but a lot of the, the countries sort of have like a conversation, well, not a literal conversation, but like a, like, um, a conversation in the same way that, that scholarship develops, right? So there's publications and, and maybe artists or politicians are traveling and sort of there's this flow of ideas. So it, a lot of these countries, they have these ideas sort of developing at the same time, um, so, yes, <laughs> uh, he was very much intertwined with a lot of these conversations. And, of course, he has, like, a different point of view um, as he studies in Europe. And so, while he's a socially white artist, right, in the Peruvian context, he's considered an artist of color when he's in Paris. So, like, there's that sort of duality of identity there. Um, and... This is, I think, I think we talked about this a little bit in the Tarsila Dormoral episode. So you can sort of jump back to the very beginning of the, the podcast and sort of, there's a little bit more of an in-depth conversation around that. Um, but his, so Indigenismo, back to Indigenismo, that was a, I got a little bit of a tangent. Um, it's mainly in relation to national identity and how the government thought of indigenous people as a burden to society, but also sort of like this curiosity and proverbial other, but also relate related to. Um, it's really complex. And for the sake of this episode, I'm not going to get into that. But it's, it is very, very interesting and very eye-opening, I should say. 
Um, but really another important point, if we were to look at this work in, in an essay, is uh, we should reference Natalia Maliuf's reading of it. So um, Maliuf makes note that the work is an allegory of the of the oppression of Peruvian of, sorry, of the Peruvian Indian. However, French critics interpreted the ceramic vessel as one made by the man himself rather than by his ancestors. And they supposedly missed the point of this, which was the struggle of the Amerindian in colonial and post-independent Peru. The mis uh, this misinterpretation then stereotyped the man as a simple potter, similar to the Costumbrisma, sorry, Costumbrista, um, and I'm recording this very late at night, and which is why I'm a little quiet and a little tired and tongue-tied. Um, so costumbrista, costumbrista was sort of like a genre painting, but it's specific to Latin America. Uh, so Maliev also points out that because of these readings, the title of the work was changed from Inhabitant of the... Cordillera of Peru to Indian Potter, and it has sort of stuck since then. Um, so, yeah, I promise I'm not getting paid to market her book, <laughs> but you should definitely read it because it's wonderful and it has some really good information. I haven't read it in its entirety yet. I was able to sort of preview the introduction uh, on, on Google Books, and I can already tell it's going to be really, really wonderful. Um, and I, I plan on reading it for my independent study. Um, I'm very excited about that. And on top of that, the book has gotten some really, really incredible reviews by other art historians who focus on Latin American art. So all around, it's supposed to be a fantastic book and you should check it out, uh, especially if you're interested in Peruvian art of this period or Francisco Lasso, because I think, you know, well, I assume he's the main focus of it, which based on the introduction, I think he is. Uh, <laughs> Uh, anyway, so back to the body paragraphs. So these are the types of things that you want to consider when you're making your argument. Ultimately, how does the artist's identity and politics of the period or any other relevant information enhance your understanding of the work? How can you use this information to add to the conversation about it or about the artist? Now, the artist's identity doesn't always make, like doesn't always make it into the, the framework. So since most survey classes at the undergrad level and the introductory level are, they're like sort of global. So it, like the artist's identity might not work for your piece. It might not. Um, but if you're looking at more like 19th century to present works, it probably will. So sort of take that one as to whatever period you're working on. And you sort of have to use your best judgment or you can always ask your professor. Um, so once you've navigated your way through these thoughts, uh, your body paragraphs should be relatively well organized and, and you know, they, they should create a coherent argument for your reader uh, and, and you should be ready to get to your conclusion. And contrary to popular belief, you don't really want to restate your introduction because your introduction introduces the argument and your body paragraphs prove it. So that means that really your conclusion should wrap everything up and 
and uh, you don't need to reconvince the reader of your argument. It should really be a moment where you finalize your thoughts and maybe leave room of what could be next. Uh, so a lot of times students who are still in their early academic careers feel that they need to have the most airtight, locked, set in stone, impermeable argument, um, but that is impossible. <laughs> um, uh, we can always learn and continue to add to the conversation. So sort of, if you can, let go of that feeling or that desire to be like the perfect paper. It's never going to be perfect and that's okay. Uh, so <laughs> um, if you are concerned about your argument, what you can do and what you should do is ask yourself, did you answer the questions that you proposed? Does your thesis match or echo your conclusion? Um, asking yourself will really solidify the argument, uh, but also leave space for future improvement, which again is very important. Um, so yeah, this is sort of how you want to approach the historical context essay. It's not a perfect guide because every paper is different. Every assignment is going to be a little bit different. Um, I feel like it's a little bit more difficult to just sort of break this down because every professor wants something different for this. It's not like a visual analysis where it's broadly the same idea where you just describe what you're seeing and that's 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 it. That's the whole thing. But historical context, you know, it it has a lot of different variables. Obviously, at its core, yes, you're bringing in historical and cultural context. But how does it fit to your assignment guidelines? And you sort of need to keep that in mind. So you can't just answer any old historical context question. You have to consider what your professor wants you to do. Um, but yeah, I hope, I hope this has been a helpful start on how to approach in our historical essay. Obviously, it's just one way to go about it, and your professor may have another way, like I've been trying to get across. Um, but regardless of whatever method you use, you should always, always, always proofread your assignment before you turn it in, and better yet, take it to the writing center or your department writing tuner. I offer five points to students who do this, and you would be surprised how many students don't take advantage of it. It's quite literally a win-win. Your writing improves and you get bonus points. And if you don't get extra credit for going to the writing center or writing tutor, your grade on the assignment is going to reflect the extra work that you put in. Um, so yeah, go out into the art world and write your hearts out. Feel free to email me with other tips you may have. Um, and to, uh, any other professors that are listening, what templates do you give your students? I'd love to know so that I can share here and with my students. Um, and if you're a student listening, if you have other questions, please feel free to email me. I'm happy to, to work with you and point you in the right direction um, if for whatever reason you can't get a hold of your professor. Uh, but before I say goodbye, I did want to let all the listeners know that I am going to be doing a merch sale on the website. Uh, so you can get 10% off your entire purchase using the code SPRING10. So spring, like the season, and the number 10. So SPRING10. Uh, I meant to do one for my birthday in January, but not having a computer, 
was really a downer um, and I couldn't get anything done. So let's get ready for spring break instead. And now you can stock up on your ArtWatch podcast merch and be on the lookout for some new items. The code will expire March 31st, but you can use it as many times as you'd like. And so go buy some merch. I would greatly appreciate it because I too am a struggling arts uh, college student. So um, it really helps me out and it keeps, it really helps me pay for the, um, like the behind the scenes thing for the podcast. So I have my subscription coming up this month actually. And I just paid the, the, the podcasting platform subscription. Now it's going to be the website. So that's what the merge goes to. Um, oh, and I am also doing tutoring sessions now. So you can see the extra services tab on the website, which is www.artwatchpodcast.com. Um, so these sessions aren't included in the sale because the sale is, um, focusing on merch, but if you're interested in it, I would be happy to do one in April. And I know that April is usually the time where students are sort of gearing up for final papers. So, um, I had planned on doing it more as like a tutoring session as sort of like an extra. I know every podcast does different incentives to meet with their, their listeners, but I have been a tutor for over five years now and lots of my students have gotten A's in their papers. So I don't mean to brag, but I did help a couple other students become art history teachers. So I think I could help you out. Um, so yeah, as always, follow me on social media at artwatchpodcast and you can email me artwatchpodcast at gmail.com with any questions. Um, or maybe even things you want me to add in to, like, if I were to do another uh, writing workshop episode. Um, so, yeah, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to and share with a friend. And if you are really, really loving what you're listening to, leave me a wonderful review. That would really help me out. And, okay, I hope you have a wonderful week and see you next time.